Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show with Chris Webster on KNVC 95.1 FM, Carson Community Media in Carson City, Nevada and online at knvc.org forward slash listen dash live. Welcome to the show. Hello, listeners and fans of archaeology. I'm your host for the next hour, Chris Webster. I'm a contract archaeologist in a field we call cultural resource management, I also run the Archaeology Podcast Network. We have lots of shows about archaeology, and you can find them all at www.archpodnet.com. Today will be a recap and discussion about my last three weeks out in the field and some issues that came up as a result. I'm hoping to have some discussions and take your questions. Speaking of questions, this is first and foremost a call-in show. Call in with your questions to 775-515-4141. That's 775-515-4141. You can also tweet your questions to at ArcheoWebby, and that's A-R-C-H-E-O-W-E-B-B-Y, or at ArcPodNet, uh, or send in an email, Chris, at ArcheologyPodcastNetwork.com. Of course, all that's really difficult to manage, so if I miss it, apologies, but hopefully uh, we can get something in here. Because, to be honest, folks, I do podcasts, and podcasts are a, a one-way communication device. It's, it's very hard to get uh, communication back on a podcast. I mean, sure, some people send in questions, but having that immediate feedback is, is why I started this radio show. So if you're listening to this, um, if you're enjoying it, even if you want to call in and just say, hey, you know, that all sounds great, then please call in so we know people are listening and people are enjoying the content and people are engaging with the content, which is the entire point of me doing this show and really everything that I do. So uh, if you want to call in about anything on this show any single time, uh, not just the topic at hand, I mean, if I have a guest, then you know maybe we'll do that, but there's no guest today. But uh, feel free to call in with your questions about anything about archaeology, history, archaeology on TV. There's a lot of different things out there that can be confusing or misleading because you know it's TV and they have ratings to worry about, not facts. Um, or if you have questions about finding things on your property, especially you local people living in Nevada here or down in the Carson Valley, uh, there's a lot of archaeology right in your backyard. And you may have found something. You may have questions about it. Uh, I don't do appraisals, and I can also talk about why that is. But I can talk about you know possibly what the artifacts are and what they mean. Um, I don't know everything, but I, I do know a fair amount of things. So, uh, Or at least I can point you in the right direction. So anyway, that phone number one more time is 775 515 as I said, I've been gone for three weeks, so I had some recorded episodes from the Archaeology Show podcast uh, on the Archaeology Podcast Network over at, again, arcpodnet.com slash archaeology. And I want to know what you guys thought about these things. So they've been playing. Uh, I, I did a little bit of reworking to them for the radio show. But they're still really great episodes, and and that's what I love about doing the podcast. Is they're um, you know they're they're like a, a catalog or a uh, I guess a back catalog of just 
awesome educational information, which is why I like playing them on uh, on this radio show in this time slot when I have to be out of town. Uh, the first week, uh, so three weeks ago, I guess technically four weeks ago, um, we talked to Billy Griffiths, who is an author and archaeologist in Australia, about his book, Deep Time Dreaming. Uh, he's an Australian archaeologist, and in Deep Time Dreaming is about coming to terms with the massive uh, antiquity of a land and a, and a people uh, and that identify with that land. So that's that's such an interesting concept, and it was such a great show to record because, you know, as far as we know, uh, I think people came to Australia uh, something like, like Homo sapiens came to Australia something like forty to 60,000 years ago. Of course, we all hear the stories about, uh, you know, Britain sending their convicts there, <laughs> which is also true. Um, but there were people there long before that. Uh, the Aboriginal people of Australia are there before that. In fact, that's where we get the term Aboriginal. We call them ad- Aborigines, and you know they're the original people on the land of Australia. And they have a massive history, and they call their own history um, deep time. You know, deep time dreaming, and 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 that whole concept. So it's really interesting to sit and think about that. And often when I'm on a prehistoric archaeology site which I'll talk a little bit about here in a, in a few minutes. But often when I'm on a prehistoric archaeology site, uh, I, I will think about, you know, what did this landscape look like when people were here before? Uh, what, what, were, what were they doing? What were they thinking? What were they, you know, what were their issues? You know, when I'm sitting there, I'm thinking lots of things. You know, I've got, uh, I've got email that needs to be checked. I've got, <laughs> you know, probably just got a text message. Uh, something on Slack came through. And in the meantime, I'm thinking about logistics. I'm a crew chief or I'm a field director. When's our next break? When's our, you know, when can I get my people a break? When can we get a, um, you know, when can we get our lunch scheduled? But then sometimes you just got to sit down and think, okay, I'm recording this prehistoric uh, pottery. Uh, we find a lot of things that are called pot drops, uh, just kind of a quick term for it. Basically, Something was dropped or left there. We don't know if it was, you know, somebody moving across the landscape and they dropped it. But a pot drop is typically a term for uh, a ceramic pot of some sort, and it's that's the only thing there. You don't find any other artifacts in association. If you found uh, what we call groundstone or things related to more sedentary activities, like some sort of temporary campsite or habitation site, then that says something different about it. But if all you find across the entire landscape in this one area is ceramic sherds, and sherd is the term. I found out a couple weeks ago that people don't know the term sherd. Sherd refers to ceramic pieces. Shard refers to glass pieces. So there's a little education for the day. But if you find this this pot drop, and it's it's just they're all the same. They're all the same color, uh, maybe the same decoration if there is any, uh, same motif if there's something painted on it, um, or you know something like that. And they're usually in close proximity to each other, maybe within a few feet of each other, you know, three to six feet or one to two meters. And that is typically a single event we call it. So, um, or, or what we call a pot drop in that case. There's other things that can be single events like that, but that's one that particularly comes to mind. So I, I like to think when I see that kind of thing, okay, where were they going? What were they doing? Uh, was this a kid? Did somebody say, here, hold on to this, and then they tripped over a rock and, and, and dropped it? I mean, those tiny little details are the details that make history, uh, I guess, come alive, and, and the, the details that make that what we find become real and not just data that we're writing down on a piece of paper or, or in a tablet and recording. You know, it, it, it makes these real people. And it's weird to say that because, of course, they're real people. But sometimes, as archaeologists, we just get into the science and we get into the to the doing of the thing. And we don't step back and say, 
oh, right, this was a person that did this, a person that had real concerns, you know, like, like, hey, that, you know, glacier's looking really big, or, uh, you know, the lake is going away. In the particular case of a few weeks ago, there was a lake there uh, in prehistoric times. And uh, I can't remember what the name of the lake was, Lake Coe or something like that. Anyway, there was a lake there in prehistoric times, so a lot of people – we're having activities around this lake and we know generally where the lake was the lake edge was at different periods of time because lake edges in your lifetime might be constant uh you know the edges of lake tahoe don't move very much that's a bad example because it's bounded by mountains but let's say pyramid lake um up here in nevada you know the that lake the edges don't really move that much you know they might move a little bit seasonally but they don't typically move that much but pyramid lake was part of a bigger lake called lake lahontan which covered this entire area, it was the biggest inland sea of its time in that era. And uh, there still is a Lake Lahontan um, outside Carson City. But that's not that's not the uh, original Lake Lahontan. It's part of it. But there's a lot of different lakes that were part of this Lake Lahontan. So people that lived back in that time will be looking at this lake edge. And maybe in their own lifetime, the lake edge also didn't move. But then a couple generations back, they they look back and they say, hey, our village used to be, you know, that way, many feet, <laughs> whatever they call it, you know, it was a five minute walk that way. And now it's here. And uh, what's going on here? You know, they may not have understood what was happening or, or uh, you know, uh, anything like that. But that's, uh, that's problematic. So that's what I think of when I think of deep time dreaming, I, I like to get out there, you know, in the end, you know, you're working a job and you got to get the work done. But if we do have a chance to sit down and just really think about it, then I, I like to do that. So that was that was Billy Griffiths. Um, uh, if you have any comments on that episode from three weeks ago, if you heard it, I'd love to know your thoughts on that. Again, 775-515-4141. You can call in or send an email, chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. I am attempting to uh, keep an eye on that while we're doing the show here. So, Okay, so in the second week of the show, uh, we talked about... Uh, nationalism and tribalism. So uh, let me back up just a second, though, because we have something tied to this. The Section 106 process is what is typically called when we do the uh, when we do the um, uh, the process of archaeology. And and before I get into that, we do have a question online too. So I'm going to bring Joe in online too right now. Hopefully, I don't drop the call. All right, so I'm bringing Joe in right now. Um, I know he's on one of these phone lines. How about that? Joe, can you hear me? Yes, I can, Chris. I love your program, man. Hey, thanks a lot, man. What's your question? My, our question is my wife and I, Anne, love to camp in Nevada. Yeah. And one of the, one of the as we drive around, uh, one of the things that uh, always intrigues us are all the dry lakes that are, are just prevalent in Nevada, and we, we know they're dry lakes. We look out there, we see them, but we know that there was something else going on in prehistoric time that was, that was more lake, the normal lake kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I know, uh, I'm not using technical terms. Can you sure. talk in terms of, of the dry lake phenomenon in the, in the Great Basin? So, yeah, uh, thanks for your question, Joe. Um, so it's, it's interesting with dry lakes. So let me, let me back up and talk about geology just for a second here. Lakes have a unique 
ability to take in uh, sediment just from the air because there's there's sediment in, in rain. There's there's sediment that comes in through, um, you know, through uh, washes down the mountainsides into lakes areas. And one of the unique things about a lake is it tends to because of the way water works, if you've ever put like sand in a bucket or something like that, it tends to lay flat. Or if you've ever walked uh, on a beach, right, the sand, the sand tends to lay flat because water has that settling effect on sediment. So anywhere you see mountains on the edges, like the Carson Valley, like Reno, the Truckee Meadows, anytime you see mountains on the edges and flat in the middle, chances are there was a lake there. It may have been 20, 30, 40,000 years ago, but chances are there was a lake there and it filled in these areas of mountains and it filled in these these sediments and it, and it made it all level and flat. And that's another reason why when we look at mountains in Nevada and we go out and we drive around and we see these uplifts and these uh, all these layers, those layers are flat for usually um, one of two reasons. Now, I'm not a geologist, so if there is a geologist listening, feel free to call in and correct me, but those lakes, those those layers are flat for one of two reasons. Typically, they were laid down as lake sediments in some cases, or it could just be geological time and pressure has flattened these things out. So to address your question, Joe, uh, about the dry lake beds, those are just more recent episodes of that. So we go through cycles of, you know, wet and dry periods in this world. Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's different cycles. We're not really talking about, you know, human climate change or anything like that. We're talking about natural climate change, and and we go through these cycles. So these dry lakes are are places, and in in Nevada, they can become wet lakes really, really fast. Um, But typically, they're dry lakes because their, their source of water has dried up. Now, maybe there was an underground aquifer somewhere. Or maybe the environment was completely different, but typically there was some sort of underground water source that was up in the mountains or somewhere nearby, and it fed into this lake, and it did it for long enough that we recognize it as a lake bed now. And prehistorically, they also would have recognized that as a lake bed, and they would have that would have been a nice source for food because other animals come to these sources of water. Other things grow there um, as a result of the water, and it was just a great place to go and and live and hang out and and get stuff. So um, dry lakes in Nevada are really great places for archaeologists to go find um, archaeological sites. And the neat thing about dry lakes is they used to be, as I said, probably wet lakes. And if they're around for any length of time and if they're in some sort of basin, they've probably been around for a really long time, then you can look up the sides of the hills and you can typically see these sort of flatter areas up in the hills. And those are places at which the lake level was like that for an extended period of time because the, the, the wave action of the, uh, of the lake would have created these shorelines. We call them ancient shorelines or paleo shorelines. And the higher up you go, typically the farther back in time you're going because lakes tend to get shallower through time. And the higher up you go, the older sites you'll find. So if you want to find older archaeological sites, you just look up higher in the hills on those uh, on those shorelines. So I don't know if that rambling answer um, satisfied your your curiosity, Joe. <laughs> no, it uh, really does because we 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 tend to as as uh, non archaeologists <laughs> look at them and, and and create our own story behind them, and that's yeah. always the most fun is is imagining what was going on and. What's also beautiful about uh, the Nevada dry lakes is you're driving or walking, uh, camping, whatever you're doing, and you see them in the distance. They they glimmer. There's yeah. uh, this beautiful white uh, appearance of them that uh, has them stand out. And I'm assuming the, the again, you're. Uh, it's a I guess a question for a geologist, but. <laughs> 
What's the cause of, of that beautiful white shimmering look? Yeah, well, it could be one of two things um, from, from my own experience. Um, first off, it could just be heat coming off the lake and you're off in a distance. You know, it's that kind of mirage effect of heat coming off of that sort of surface, especially if it's got a little bit of moisture left in it. Uh, for example, in a lot of these dry lake beds, if you get out in the middle and you just, you know, dig down, uh, six inches, 12 inches, you might find actual wet, wet, uh, soil. And that when the heat of the afternoon picks up, uh, here in the great basin, that moisture comes up and that evaporation causes that shimmering mirage like effect. If you're in the right angle of it to the sun and all that. Now, of course, the other thing is that whitish look to it. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of salt in natural soil, and these salts come up with the water, and then when the water goes away and dissolves, all you're left with is those salts. That why you, that's why you actually see in some places where the salt is more prevalent, you see salt mines and salt operations. Um, I think there's one out near Fallon. When you go past Fallon, there's a dry lake oh, out there. I've uh, been to that yeah. uh, location. Uh, uh, actually, that family has been around forever in Fallon. Mm-hmm. That is the hardest work. I mean, you know, <laughs> the old cliche of, of being sent to the salt mine. Oh, that, that is a salt mine, and they they stand in water. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, it's just remarkable what the, uh, that business is, and they consider the miners. Isn't that ironic? Yeah. Uh, and I guess they're mining salt, but, uh, uh, it, you know, uh, but it's not a place where tourists are going to go and sure. see what's going on. But uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to see it years ago mm-hmm. uh, in a, when I had a different life uh, and different job. Uh, and it was just fascinating. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. it is. Well, well, thank so, you for uh, your call, Joe. Yeah. Do you got anything else? Yeah, I got one more question okay. for you. Uh, I live up in Silver City. I don't know if you're familiar with Silver mm-hmm. City. It's in, it's in the Comstock, and uh, uh, there's a community up here, uh, Silver City community, uh, that is uh, to a person opposed to a mining operation that's right nearby, mm-hmm. uh, that's threatening their community. Uh, and uh, and I, I tell you this story because part of the, the resistance to that uh, uh, mining operation, uh, Silver City seems to have it uh, uh, an on uh, way beyond percentage uh, population of archaeologists. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, what's fascinating about archaeologists, and I know that you can you can uh, test this, <laughs> is the research skills that archaeologists possess. Uh, not only can they they get into really refined detail in their research. But then they're they're really good uh, writers and narrators of that research. They can translate that research into something that's readable for the general public. So mm-hmm. uh, my hats off to all archaeologists because uh, I've I've watched how hard they uh, how deep their research skills uh, uh, are, how extensive they are, and how valuable they are. So. Uh, if you're ever up in Silver City, I'll introduce you to some of these kind of uh, characters that are that are actually professional archaeologists. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and thanks for that because uh, that's it's one thing I, I like people to know about archaeology is that it's a uh, it's a profession of people that are that are really passionate about what they do. Because to be honest, there's not a whole lot of money in archaeology. I mean, you you go out and do work they as can a all attest to that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whether you're getting paid as a college professor or you know, uh, as a as a cultural resource management archaeologist like myself, I mean, there just simply isn't a lot of money in that profession. And 
So we do this because we love we love history and we love telling stories about history. And that's that's one thing I've started to tell people in the last couple of years, especially through the podcast network, is uh, one of the most common questions archaeologists get is what's the coolest thing you've ever found, and uh, or or what's a cool site you've been on or something like that. And I try to well, I, I deflate them a little bit and I say, well, I don't like to talk about artifacts in that way because that's usually what they're talking about. What's the coolest artifact you found? What's the coolest thing you found? But glorifying the things of archaeology, even buildings and stuff like that, glorifying the things takes away from the history and the story, I think. The things help tell the story, but the things are only one small part of the story. I mean, just to bring it back to relevant times, the the fire at Notre Dame Cathedral, you know, I mean, we lost a lot of Notre Dame Cathedral and they're going to rebuild, obviously, but uh, we lost the the original history of a lot of that place. But we have a lot of the stories. We have a lot of the things that were, you know, as a result of that, because, you know, the, the church has obviously kept that going, and, the, and they've got all the stories and, and documentation about what's gone on there. And that's something that can never be taken away. You know, we can rebuild the structure, but the stories will always be there, and then we'll build new stories based on the new things that are there. So um, that's what I like to tell people. So anyway, thank you for that, Joe. All right. Great program. Thanks. Awesome. Thank you. Right. Bye-bye. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So, yeah, I mean, this is this is awesome. Um, you know, what are your what are your thoughts on, on archaeology and, and, uh, and what I just said there about... Uh, um, really, really about honestly, the the concept of what this all means. You know what this all means to you. You know what are your own artifacts? How do your own artifacts tell a story about you? That's one thing people don't think about. Like, look down at your desk or living room or kitchen or car or something like that. And if and if something sitting right there or even your entire house, if that was the if you were suddenly disappeared tomorrow. And the only thing we had left was that. And, and people who don't know you tried to tell your story based on your things. What would that story be? You know, what would that story look like based on the things that you own and the things that you have around you? How would we tell that story? Um, there is a great book. Uh, I can't remember the author, so look, I'll have to look this up. But uh, it's called The Nasarema. And it's about analyzing uh, basically what became an archaeological site, um, you know, decades or years later it's kind of a thought experiment and they're analyzing these things to tell the story nasarema is american spelled backwards and you know you you realize when they're trying to tell this story that when they're talking about a toothbrush and describing a toothbrush we're assuming that the people or society describing these things have never seen these things before and they don't know what they are so they're trying to describe them and figure out what these things are and what their uses are and uh i mean that goes back to a 
a comic I saw one time where it was like, you know, thousands of years in the future and there's aliens standing there and you see a freeway, uh, like a freeway interstate overpass, like something that's been built up with the, with the concrete pillars beneath it. But the only thing left are the concrete pillars and the freeway's gone and there's no buildings and there's no anything. It's just sitting out in this desert. And for some reason, these concrete pillars are there. And they're saying, oh, it must have been some ritualistic society, and these are their, you know, these are their gods or something like that. <laughs> I thought that was, that was particularly funny to an archaeologist because it's kind of a joke, but it's also kind of true that if we don't understand what something was used for, then we kind of default to saying it was ritual um, because a lot of things actually are ritual, to be honest. But when we say, oh, I don't know what that is because it's not in my worldview, it's not in my frame of reference, then, you know, it must be ritual. So. All right, so back to a, a quick recap of the last uh, the last couple of weeks. The second episode we had while I was gone was about nationalism and tribalism. So this is a topic I'm I'm really passionate about, and it's one that I think gets us as a people and a world uh, in trouble more often than not. Um, there's also a concept that we uh, don't talk about called cultural relativism. Cultural relativism, and I'll get to that in a second. Um, but first. Tribalism is a, is a concept that goes back to our, our roots as human beings. Um, even before that, to be honest, uh, our roots as, you know, uh, uh, hominids and, and the, the primates we were before, well, still primates, but the, the pre-hominid primates that we were before that. And really, lots of different animal species have this. So um, what I'm talking about is that, that sort of evolutionary desire and need to protect your family, okay? We had that. Lots of animals have that. Um, you know, it's it's not unique. It's something that is is born out of an evolutionary need to procreate and to pass on your genetic material. And the way to do that is to protect your family. You know, to ensure that you know your your baby or infant's not going to be you know killed or something, or or the mother back in the day uh, is not going to be killed and and can help raise that infant. Um, and then you can keep on going and, and making more babies. And that really is the point of evolution. <laughs> so. Uh, but that, that sort of thought and desire has been so so many hundreds of thousands of years born into our psyche that tribalism is the concept of taking that family protection idea and then expanding that out. So when we were smaller families and we started banding together or our extended families started not moving out and, and, and staying around us, we had a bigger unit. And that, that bigger unit was, uh, was you know called a group or a band. And then now that band became kind of your family and the desire to protect that band became a bigger version of tribalism. And then when bands started sticking together into cities and city states, then the concept of protecting your entire city became a thing, you know, that's still tribalism. And now take that down all the way to today. And we have the concept of obviously countries, even continents, but really more likely countries. And, you know, we want to fiercely protect our, our country. Um, and 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 everything within it as it was as if it were our family and i don't know to me this this really you know this is an evolutionary concept it's a cultural concept as well but it's it's such a dangerous one because we got to really sit back and consider what are we trying to protect there's no wrong thing about protecting that stuff or wanting to protect those things and wanting to protect those values but what are we trying to protect you know we just got to make sure we're not trying to protect against new culture new influence i mean this uh, the concept of the American way is something that people try to protect, but even that is only about 70 years old as we know it right now. And, uh, you know, we're a country defined by change and defined by influence from other cultures. And, you know, without cultural influences, um, we never have the concept of things like, you know, Taco Tuesday, 
which I think we can all agree on is is something that we need in this world. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't love tacos? So anyway, be careful with tribalism. Be careful with nationalism. They're um, they're they're good concepts. They help protect us um, inherently, uh, and, and you know the whole you know protecting your family and all that stuff. But they can be um, they can be quite problematic. So. Anyway, um, I want to talk to Brad now. He's a, a fan of the show. So, uh, oh, oh, Brad's Brad called and said he's a fan of the show and doesn't have a question. Thank you for calling in, Brad. I really appreciate that. Uh, I've been doing the show since December, and it's just good to know that people can hear it and and people are listening and people are getting something out of it. So, uh, like I've said before, this is first and foremost um, an educational show. Okay, so finally, last week, uh, you heard from Chris Williamson, who is the director and creator of a new documentary project coming out. It's not just a one, one episode. I think they're ending up with like 10 episodes. Um, it's called The Chasing Earhart Project. And it's all about Amelia Earhart. And not just about the disappearance of Amelia Earhart, but the search or the search for Amelia Earhart. But her, Amelia Earhart's life, you know, what what led her to become a pilot? How was she as a, you know, what kind of woman was she? What kind of child was she? He was so interested in these concepts that he moved his entire family to Atchison, Kansas, where she was born and where she grew up. Uh, she ended up living on the East Coast, of course, but um, she she was born and grown up there. And there's a, there's a museum in Atchison, I want to say. And there's, you know, there's a statue to her and all kinds of stuff. And there's people... Uh, Wow, I don't know if there's people that remember her, but there's definitely descendants of people that remember her, you know, and her family uh, as they were living there. So uh, keep an eye out for that documentary. Um, it's going to be uh, it's going to be pretty great because there's a lot of there's a lot of misinformation about Amelia Earhart out there. Um, there's a woman who I think they interview in the documentary who people think is Amelia Earhart, just like in hiding. <laughs> and first off, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, she was famous and popular and enjoyed the spotlight. And what would cause her to go into hiding and then, you know, take on an alias or, or, or another name? Uh, that's a really weird concept to think about. So uh, there's also, uh, I believe it was a National Geographic show a couple years ago uh, on her. And they thought that maybe she was stuck in this prison. Um, there's a photo, a Japanese photo of her standing on these docks like she was taken prisoner, her and Fred Noonan. And there's somebody, I think, kneeling down that kind of looks like Amelia Earhart from behind. I mean, it's really dubious. Of course, the the photograph um, the photograph was immediately debunked by somebody who knows what the heck they're talking about right after the show came out uh, because the dates are all wrong. Uh, the dates don't make any sense. And then uh, the the uh, search for her, uh, where most credible researchers think that they probably went down or near where they went down and probably lived for a little while, uh, perhaps with injuries, I don't know, but is Nicomororo Island, and that's um, over in the Pacific, I mean, sorry, in the Atlantic. And uh, Tom King is an archaeologist who worked with the Tigar Project, which is the, uh, uh, basically it's a, it's a group, I don't remember what the acronym stands for, but it's a group that um, searches for historic aircraft wrecks and things like that. And uh, I've interviewed Tom King before on the Archaeology Podcast Network. Actually, if you go over there to archpodnet.com and type in Tom King, uh, you'll see a bunch of different episodes where we talked to him. And we actually did talk to him about the, uh, his research with the Amelia Earhart Project as well. So um, all that's great. And uh, I hope you guys got some, some interesting uh, quality stuff out of that. So uh, we're going to take just a, a short break right now. We're going to come back and I will talk to you all about my work near the Mexican border for the last three weeks. 
had a lighter, I had a flame, but she had a fire. I was bright, but she was much brighter. I was high, but she was the sky. Oh, baby, I was bound for Mexico. that song it's uh it's called mexico by cake if you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all listen up CarShield has a low-cost month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, so welcome back to the Archaeology Show. This is 95.1 FM. Carson City Community Media, Carson Community Media in Carson City, Nevada. This is Chris Webster, and we're going to talk about my work down near the Mexican border these last few weeks. Um, call in with your questions at 775-515-4141. As I'm talking about this, I'm really interested in not the political discussion about border and immigration policy, but really more of a philosophical, cultural discussion about it, because We've always had borders, whether you like it or not. We've always had borders, even if it's just 
somebody staking out a claim on a ridge and saying, don't come near me, that's a border, right? We've just formalized those borders with walls and, and fences and guns and and uh, documents and things like that. But we've always we basically always had borders. But I want to think about what a world would look like without borders, uh, you know, just philosophically as a, as a thought experiment. You know, what are your thoughts on that? What would that look like? Not immediately following the reduction of all the borders and the removal of all borders across the planet, but 100 years later. What's that look like? You know, is it Star Trek? <laughs> are, we, are we one planet amongst a federation of planets? Or is it, you know, completely impossible? Is it something we can never achieve, you know, as a, as a society? And, and think about it this way, too. The United States of America was, you know, had, our borders have constantly changed. Um, I mean, not so much lately, but we added Alaska like 70 years ago. We added Hawaii. Uh, we, we might be adding some more states. Uh, we might be splitting up some states and making new ones. Borders are completely arbitrary. They're, they're a cultural construct. That goes back to what I said in the last segment that I never actually got to again about cultural relativism, which is basically all the morals and ethics of a culture are typically right at the time. <laughs> they, they might not be right in 100 years when you look back through the lens of history, but they're right at the time. And that goes with borders. You know, Borders right now seem like, yeah, it totally makes sense. We have a border with Mexico and a border with Canada and a border with California and uh, you know a border with Lake Tahoe that happens to be a mountain. And uh, you know we have all these borders, but will those borders make any sense in 100 years? Uh, and that's what I want people to you know, think about and call in. 775-515-4141. So now let's talk about cultural resource management or CRM, archaeology, and what I was doing for the past three weeks. So without getting into any discussion of uh, clients or anything like that, because that's typically not stuff we're allowed to talk about, uh, just because, not for any secrecy reason, it wasn't the government, but, you know, it's just client confidentiality type stuff. So uh, one of the reasons that we do archaeology is as a result of the National Historic Preservation Act and one tiny paragraph called Section 106. And that's actually changed. If you go try to look it up now, they changed the whole numbering system, but we still call it Section 106 because there's a whole concept and books and classes you can take on the Section 106 process. And basically what that means is that if, we're, if, if there's a project happening on government, either on government land or land that requires a government permit, so let's say you're putting up a cell tower on private land, that's an FCC permit, and that requires Section 106 and also probably requires um, some work called a NEPA uh, project too, National Environmental Policy Act, but that's a different thing. So what we were doing is uh, basically a huge transmission line survey, a proposed transmission line. They may not even do it, um, but they had to check the land out first. And, and we walk over this land, and what we're doing is what Section 106 tells us to do is to evaluate the effects or impacts of an undertaking on a cultural resource. So one of the first stages of that process is to identify the cultural resources. And depending on the area, that can be done in a number of different ways. Let's say back east in, uh, in, in the east coast of the United States, there's a lot of what we call soil deposition from hurricanes, from you know trees and, and vegetation. All that stuff creates soil. So artifacts and features and sites get buried very quickly. So when we do an initial survey to find out what's there, on the East Coast, we do what's called shovel testing. Um, we, we, we walk across the landscape, and you typically every 10 to 30 meters, depending on the area and depending on the history that we already know and what we call the site density that's possible there, we'll decide this interval, and we'll dig a hole down to either the water table or as far as our shovel will reach uh, and see what's there. 
And then we'll take all the data that we collect from these shovel tests and say, okay, so we had a whole bunch of positive shovel tests over here, which means something was in it. And we need to go do further investigation there. So then we'll go to the next phase, typically called phase two, but it can be called a number of things. So then we'll go to the next phase. And at that level, we'll dig uh, usually square test units or maybe a trench, like a one by two, or maybe we'll get a backhoe and we'll dig a, whole, we'll dig a trench in a, in, a, in a dense artifact area to find out what else is there. And if we start finding features, uh, indications of habitation, stuff like that, then We'll take it to the next phase, which is full-scale excavation. Now, I hear in the West, we don't have nearly as much soil deposition. So uh, it's called a palimpsest of history out here, which means you can have artifacts from uh, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, 14,000 years ago, sitting on the surface because of two things. One, there's very little soil deposition. There's not a lot of created soil because, let's be honest, sagebrush, creosote, and juniper trees don't create that much soil. So... There's very little soil creation, and then when we do get that occasional rain, it washes all the soil away down into those dry lake beds that Joe was mentioning in the first segment. So, you know, all that sediment gets washed down the hill, and we're left with these artifacts just sitting on the surface. So now it's up to archaeologists to use other methods to determine the antiquity of these things. How old are they? And a lot of times we do that by shape and things like that. But I'm getting off topic. The point is, that's what we do. Um, So on this particular project... We were spaced out 10 to 15 meters, and we were just archaeologists walking in a line, and we were marching down this uh, transmission line corridor. It was about 90 miles long and uh, about uh, about 100 meters wide, I think, and a meter is about three feet, so you can factor that in. So it was about 100 meters wide, and uh, we're just basically walking along at 10 to 15 meter intervals, and you might ask why we're not walking you know, shoulder to shoulder so we can find everything. Well, the short answer to that is money. Uh, if we had the money, we probably would do that. And I'm looking at ways to do that via drone survey. However, uh, what we're actually looking for are big habitation sites. We're looking for those places where people lived, not necessarily where they happened to drop something while they were going from one place to the next. Now, if we do find those things, they're called isolates, um, isolated finds, like the pot drops I mentioned earlier. When we do find those things, obviously we're ethically obligated to record those, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to halt construction uh, because it's not... Uh, there's no sensitive way to say this, but it's not culturally significant enough to the big picture as a whole to warrant uh, moving it or something like that. And actually, we have Native American monitors from representative tribes in those different areas, and they agree with us on that. So at least we have that correlation. So what we're looking for is the bigger habitation sites. And if we do find something that has, say, um, lithics or uh, what we call uh, the debitage, which is the little flakes from making arrowheads and what we call projectile points, uh, we don't typically call them arrowheads because they could have been spear points. They could have been arrow points. They could have been dart points. So projectile point covers all of those. So the 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 the, the debitage, it's called, is the word for the flakes that come off of that. So we find a bunch of that, and then we find maybe some ceramic stuff. Ceramics are a really good indication of a habitation site because uh, they didn't, you know, they typically didn't move around with that very much. You know, they would stop one place and, and use those things and make them, and and then uh, while well, they lived there for a little while. And then grinding stones as well. So any place where, again, there used to be a lake out there. So there would have been, uh, I think there were pinion out there. So they would have had nuts and, and seeds and things like that. They would have ground and done different things too. So you find these grinding stone sites. Again, not very mobile objects. So when you find that kind of stuff, it's typically an indicator that somebody stayed there for a long time. And we're really interested in stuff like that. Not that the temporary stuff isn't as important to the story, but it just doesn't tell as good of a story. 
so it, it's, it's really difficult to tell something from one little thing, but we can take all these little pieces and put them together, then we can tell a big story. So that's what we're looking for, and that's why we have the interval spacing that we do. So anytime we find something, we come together, we look around in a 20 to 30 meter radius and say, is there anything else? If there's nothing else, then we record it as an isolated find. Uh, if there is something else, then we record it as an archaeological site. And then an evaluation through uh, through these processes are done later. And typically they're evaluated to uh, determine whether they're eligible for listing on the National Register of Historic Places. And it doesn't mean they will be registered, but we, we evaluate, we, we check it for evaluation um, of whether or not it's capable of that. Hey everybody, Chris Webster here from the Archaeology Podcast Network to talk about Timeuller, one of our affiliates. Head over to arcpodnet.com forward slash Timeuller. Click through there and you'll see this eight-sided cube that I use for tracking all my time as a project manager, all my time between the Archaeology Podcast Network and everything else I do. All you do is label the sides and then you flip it, flip it, flip it, flip it for each thing that you do and it tracks your time exactly. You're able to export that as uh, an Excel spreadsheet or CSV file to add to your timesheets. So if you're doing project tracking or any sort of tracking, then use Timeuller. If you're out in the field, you can actually use it on just your mobile device as well. So get Timeuller at arcpodnet.com forward slash Timeuller. Help support them and support archaeological education and outreach. So survey intervals, um, section 106. All right, so what are we looking for? Well, typically, by the letter of the regulations that we work under, it's uh, anything older than 50 years. Now, some of you might be listening for this saying, well, if I was walking out there, you'd record me. And that's actually true. <laughs> I just turned 44, so in six years, I'll have to submit myself to the National Register of Historic Places. And uh, I believe I told my dad I was going to submit him, too, um, when he turned 50. But uh, I did not. You can't actually submit a person, so don't worry about it if you're over the age of 50. However, uh, you are historic in, in other ways in that you have this, you know, vast amount of knowledge, which, you know, is, is a historic resource, I would say. But anyway, we're looking for anything older than 50 years. So in 2019, that means 1969, uh, which ends up getting a, a little problematic because, um, you know, you might think as we get later on in, in years, things were easier to date. But they started using interesting codes and, and different dots and things on stuff, on bottles and cans and things like that. And a lot of times this stuff wasn't very well documented. So we do know some things like, um, you know, flat top beverage cans were aluminum and metal um, moving into the late 50s and the 60s versus all metal before that. Uh, they started having these these uh, the pull tabs. Everybody remembers the little aluminum tab that you pull off of there that you can still find on like some uh, tomato juice cans and things like that. And then uh, you know cans went to all aluminum. Uh, bottles started to change again. They were getting these little registration marks on the bottom so they could be read by um, different machines and stuff like that. So that's getting up into the 70s and then into the 80s. Um, so it's going to get a little more interesting as we go through the years. And there's a lot of archaeologists talking about just arbitrarily setting a date at which we record stuff in some areas. Uh, but I don't know if that's ever going to happen. So anyway, uh, that's typically what we're looking for. And that, again, means anything from 1969 all the way back as far back as you can possibly imagine. Um, and people were here 10 to 14,000 years ago, depending on where you're at. So that's what we're looking for. Uh, where does the information go? Well, uh, we were on BLM land, so we were on government land. So te technically, 
all that information is going to be recorded by the archaeology firm that was doing that, and then it's going to be submitted to the BLM district office for that area, and then it will be in those files. And you have to be an archaeologist typically or have some other reason that you'll have to talk to them about in order to access those files. And that's why we call a lot of this work gray literature. It's up to the archaeologists themselves to publish independently about some of this stuff because if you want to go find the report – Typically, that's problematic. It's confidential because there's locations of sites and things like that in there, and we don't want people going and, and uh, looting them. So anyway, let me talk about working where we did. I say I was working on the Mexican border, but the the reality is the entire transmission line did parallel the Mexican border and Interstate 8, which Interstate 8 is hundreds of feet from the border and sometimes um, you know, really close. But we were... We were down there, um, and, and it moved all around because it wasn't it wasn't exactly linear. It didn't exactly follow Interstate 8 and for various reasons. I don't know. I think they had alternate routes and stuff like that. But one section of it that was about 14 miles long, I think, did actually parallel right down on the border. And uh, uh, in case you didn't know, there's a canal down there called the All-American Canal. And so the the order where, we, where I'm going to discuss here goes Interstate 8, You've got maybe fluctuating distance of three to five or six hundred feet, a huge, huge berm, and then this really wide, deep, fairly swiftly moving canal, uh, and then and then you've got anywhere from I don't know a quarter mile to a half a mile of, of desert, and then the Mexican border. It's right there, and at that particular point, all along there uh, between El Centro and uh, Central California and New Arizona, the the portions I could see. It was all uh, fence, like there's actually a border fence. I mean, people say we need to build a wall, but I'll tell you what, it's a pretty tall fence uh, with some razor wire on the top of it. It's not the easiest thing to get over, I can imagine, uh, which, is, which is what I'm going to talk about right now in the last few minutes here. So the shocking thing to me about working down there, and I'd never worked in that environment, was between the All-American Canal and Interstate 8, so you know they've already crossed the, the desert, anybody that's gone over the fence, uh, and they got to the canal – but between the canal and Interstate 8, it was all empty water bottles, which I would expect, um, and then inner tubes, uh, uh, you know, popped inner tubes, sometimes inflated ones, uh, popped inner tubes typically, uh, life rafts, life jackets, um, sometimes clothing, but typically these flotation devices. And I'm like, wow, I never would have actually expected that. For some reason, I just didn't. It just it wasn't something I conceived of as as being things that we would find. Of course, we weren't recording these things because they weren't old enough, but uh, I'll talk about that in a second. Um, but it was just a little bit shocking to me because, I mean, it's 100 degrees out. We're well prepared. We've got five liters of water in my backpack, and uh, everything's, you know, you know we're, we're still hot and, and hating life because we're <laughs> walking in the desert for eight hours a day. But then I'm looking at these things and going, man, these people, the, the struggles that they went through – and the preparedness and, and bringing these things over just so they could get across that canal because that canal is no joke. I mean, it's really difficult to get across. And then uh, and then getting over and then obviously discarding those items uh, in the desert because what else are they going to do with them? But that was, that was really shocking to me. And then another section of the uh, transmission line was on the other side of the canal. So that's kind of a no man's land in some of those areas. In some areas, there's dunes and sand dunes and there's people out there just – recreating. I mean, you can drive right up to the, right up to the fence and, uh, put your hands on it. If you want to, nobody's going to stop you. Well, border patrol is probably going to stop you. Uh, they stop everybody though. They stopped us literally every single day. Um, just about. So 
Anyway, uh, in that particular area, because of the canal and the crossings for the canal were, were monitored and gated and, and, and guarded um, by um, the Bureau of Reclamation, I think, who runs the, the, the dam operations there and the hydroelectric generation. So anyway, we had to get across there. It's still BLM land, but there's nobody out there. So we were stopped by Border Patrol frequently because they didn't talk to each other. And they were always out there saying, you know, hey, what are you guys doing? Who are you? Uh, things like that. And the interesting thing to me is we didn't find any flotation devices. Obviously, you wouldn't on that side of the canal because nobody's going back into Mexico over that direction. So, um, But I, I would have thought we would have found some. Um, but some of the artifacts we did find related to immigration, and I say artifacts because even though they're not old enough for us to record, they're still related to somebody's story. So they're still artifacts. I mean, my cell phone sitting in front of me is an artifact, even though I currently use it. That doesn't mean it's not an artifact. So... Uh, but some of the things that we found um, were, again, equally shocking. I mean, just the, the water bottles, the, the, the clothing, and, and some of the clothing choices, that's, that's one of the big things I really thought about while I was there is we are so well prepared for this. You know, I, like I said, we were carrying – I had a three-liter Camelback, and I had usually two to three liters of additional water in my backpack, and we'd go through it. I mean, because you're walking all day long in, in the hot sun. And it wasn't even that hot. I mean, it was uh, probably in the 80s um, to, you know, hundreds by the time I left there. But um, low 80s, upper 70s is not that bad down there. But it's super dry. Uh, there's snakes. There's rattlesnakes. There's, uh, there's, um, there's other snakes that will get you. There's, uh, there's all kinds of just the vegetation alone is really prickly and sharp sometimes. And, I mean, even if you just trip over some creosote, I mean, that creosote will just jam right into your leg if you don't do it right. And like I said, we're well prepared. It's well lit because it's daylight. I can only imagine coming across that landscape in the dark, um, relatively unprepared for the most part. And, you know, maybe not having enough water. I don't know, you know, how, how people are dressed when they do this, but I can only imagine that they're not prepared for it. And we saw evidence for people that, you know, quite frankly, didn't make it. And it was, uh, it was shocking and sad and really brought the whole, border and immigration issue um, to the forefront in my mind. So uh, I'm not going to speak too much more about that. Um, it's just, uh, like I said, it's shocking. And it, going back to thinking about this prehistorically and thinking about borders, uh, we did find a lot of prehistoric material out there, um, typically uh, ceramic pot drops, as I mentioned earlier. And those, um, those pot drops were really interesting to me. Because obviously that's back in a time when people were freely moving across the landscape. Again, there probably was a concept of territory, not necessarily a border so much maybe, but definitely territory. And and now because somebody threw up a line, all of a sudden it's a different thing, right? And I'm, I'm, I was talking to some of the Native American monitors and they're talking about, you know, hey, this is our, this is our, our land, you know, our ancestral homeland. And, uh, you know, so when we're recording these ceramics, they're thinking about that stuff in the context of their own ancestors because they've been there for uh, – in their, uh, in their, I guess, cultural um, uh, history, they've been there forever, right? So when we're thinking about that, I mean, these guys, they can't do anything on the other side of the border, right? They have no influence, no political influence on the other side of the U.S.-Mexican border. But culturally, of course they do. Right, <laughs> the borders were only put up, uh, you know, within the last couple hundred years in some cases, and in some areas, and it's just it's it's so fascinating to me these political constructs that we throw up that the the world, the Earth itself, you know, typically could care less about, and 
and, and then historically, you know, we could care less either. But what does that look like? You know, as I mentioned at the start of this segment, what does that look like? This sort of thought experiment about not having any borders. You know, what would the what would the planet look like after a hundred years of not having any borders? We go through a few generations of that happening. What does it look like? Um, a resource I want to mention before I forget here is Jason DeLeon, um, Dr. Jason DeLeon. He's done a lot of research down there. He wrote a book called The Land of Open Graves about um, a lot of stuff in Mexico and on the border and, and how U.S. immigration policy um, has has a, a direct impact on the human consequences of that whole equation. And uh, you can find, obviously, look up uh, A Land of Open Graves, The Land of Open Graves. It's a, it's a book you can find it on Amazon or anywhere. But his website jasonpatrickdeleon.com and deleon is d-e-l-e-o-n.com so jasonpatrickdeleon.com look that up he's got a lot of stuff on there he's written some other works on there that he talks about and it's just fascinating thinking about this stuff again it feels a little impersonal to step back and look at it as data but we have to look back at it as data so we can then tell the story right uh, if we start by just telling the story, then it's not an accurate story. We have to look at it as data first, collect the data, and then analyze the data, and then tell the story as best we can based on those data. And it's just a it's just a fascinating um, a fascinating experience and a fascinating talk. So, uh, yeah, if you have any thoughts on that, feel free to email me Chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com, um, or you can tweet me at archaeowebby or at arcpodnet. All right, so uh, for the last, for two and a half weeks of that three weeks I was gone, I was on that project, and then for the last half, I was at the biggest conference we have for archaeology in the United States, and I would say arguably in this half of the world, if not the entire world. Uh, there's some other big conferences out there, but this one's pretty big. Um, there were, from what I heard, 4,800 archaeologists that pre-signed up for it, and there's a lot that show up and just show up for a day. So there's well over 5,000 archaeologists at this, um, at this event. And it's called the Society for American Archaeology, and uh, they put out a publication called American Antiquity, which some people may have heard of. But uh, so so we went there, and uh, but what I want to talk about is not necessarily the Society for American Archaeology. Um, I want to talk about uh, what happened there, <laughs> and uh, without going into to too much detail, um, there was basically. There was a professor at the University of Alaska, and you can look this up pretty easily online. I'm not going to mention his name because I don't want him to get any clicks, but uh, he was up for uh, – he applied a couple of years ago for emeritus status, which is what professors do when they retire. And then all this stuff came out. Uh, people started coming out of the woodwork, women, that he had um, harassed or sexually abused and uh, over the years in, in one way, shape, or form. And they ended up denying him that status. And, you know, the Alaska Archaeological Association removed him. He had a Lifetime Achievement Award. They removed all that. And they got rid of all of it. Well, he was at this conference, apparently. And uh, there's a journalist that's affiliated with archaeology, and he goes to all these conferences. And he saw this guy in one of the sessions and escorted him out. And the SAA leadership uh, saw that Basically, the journalists, I mean, as far as the letter of their ethical regulations go, harassed this guy by escorting him out, and they banned the journalist from the rest of the conference. Well, I'll tell you what, the backlash on that was strong, swift, and significant. And uh, everybody was, of course, in support of the, the journalists that did this. And then the SAA organization came out and, and said that they, they basically said that they mishandled it and they, uh, they handled everything poorly. But, um, you know, the, the point is... Uh, it's 
archaeologists um, and sciences in general. Um, you know, Me Too is a is a is a swift and and significant thing, and I think that as scientists, uh, you know, we tend to think that. I don't know. We tend to think that we're above it sometimes, which I don't think that's even right. Um, but but it tends to, to be seen that way. But all this can still be impacted. And you don't realize, um, especially me as a man, how my actions might affect somebody else and their development uh, in this science and, and what they're doing and, and what they are, are careful about saying. Um, something I mentioned when we recorded a podcast about this on the CRM Archaeology Podcast, and you can look that up at the APN. I actually just released that episode today. We talked about uh, this kind of stuff in the workplace because this is changing, but a lot of times uh, you find that you're in a group of all guys on an archaeology project. Um, there's a lot more women coming out, trust me, um, and it just so happened that it was mostly guys except for our field director, and then at one point there was another woman on our crew. But, you know, when all guys get together, they typically make these jokes, and it might seem like that's no big deal. Um, it might seem like that it's because there's no women around, but you're just perpetuating this sort of behavior and it's up to us and leadership positions to basically put a stop to that and say no to it. So, um, and just say, Hey, these kinds of jokes aren't funny anymore, whether they're racial or sexual or whatever the case may be, they're just not funny anymore um, because they help enforce those divisions between us and racial jokes help enforce tribalism and nationalism. Yeah. So it all comes back to that. Um, Anyway, didn't want to end on a down note, uh, but I do want to enforce that point that, you know, the, the, the Me Too movement um, is not relegated to just movie stars and politics. <laughs> it's obviously affecting all of us, and we all need to think about it, so uh, think about our actions. But back to Mexico, check out Jason DeLeon's book, um, jasonpatrickdeleon.com, The Land of Open Graves. And if you want to ask me any questions about working down there and some of the other things we saw that I don't really want to talk about on the radio – then feel free to email me, Chris, at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. I'm trying to get Jason on uh, on the podcast, if not on the uh, radio show as well. So at some point in time, hopefully, we can get him interviewed and over here um, and, and talk about all this stuff. So that's pretty much all I've got for today. Um, we'll be back next week. And I think the week after that, I'm in a conference in Oregon uh, presenting about podcasting at the Archaeology Channel. Uh, film festival so i'll have some information on that coming back when we come back so again thanks for listening to the show uh send me an email if you like the show just tell me hey you, you get something out of it chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com all right so thanks a lot and we'll see you next week thanks for listening to the archaeology podcast we hope you enjoyed it you can provide feedback using the contact button on the right side of the website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeology. Or you can email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Please like and share the show wherever you saw it so more people can have a chance to listen and learn. Send us show suggestions and follow ArcPodNet on Twitter and Instagram. This show was produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network. Opinions are solely those of the hosts and guests of the show. However, the APN stands by their hosts. Special thanks to the band Sea Hero for letting us use their song, I Wish You'd Look. Check out their albums on Bandcamp at seahero.bandcamp.com. Check out our next episode in two weeks. And in the meantime, keep learning. Keep discovering new things and keep listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Have an awesome day. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network.
Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 